Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, here's our lead minister, Bobby Wallace. I am uh, glad to be here with you guys today, and we are wrapping up this series. It's been good for me, and I hope and pray that it's been good for you. And I would challenge you, if you have not been listening or haven't been here uh, for the other messages, to go back and listen to them, to watch them. You can listen to them on our podcast, which you can find on pretty much anywhere you get a podcast. You can find that on our website as well. But also, um, we have it on Facebook. You can go back and watch it live. Or now, for several weeks, we've been also uploading to YouTube. Our whole service is there as well. And that's a great way for you to hear these messages. Because I do believe that there's something very, very important that we as believers are missing out on a lot of times. And that's this whole idea of reset. Um, Jonathan Moynihan shared about a scientific study that was done many years ago. And the scientists wanted to analyze social dynamics and how they factor into your health. I know that's like a phrase that you wouldn't expect to come out of my mouth. But they want to look at social dynamics, like group dynamics, and how they affect your health. And so what they did I'm not advocating for it, but they gave a bunch of mice amphetamines. Yeah, they gave a bunch of mice amphetamines, and so automatically the mice went out and started stealing catalytic converters. No, I'm just kidding. Um, They didn't give them methamphetamines. They just gave them like old school speed uh, amphetamines. But they gave these mice amphetamines, and they put them all in a little group together and gave them a very, very small dosage. Well, one of the really sad things that they found from doing this was in just a matter of minutes, all of them died of a heart attack. They would just get so hyped up and they're running around in their little containment area and you know, doing what mice do, I guess. And they were so hyped up with just a small dose of amphetamines, they all died of heart attacks in just a matter of minutes. And so then to switch it up to kind of see what they could learn, they gave um, the same small dose to just one mouse by itself and it was almost virtually unaffected. They had to ramp up the dosage 20 times that first dose to get the same sad effect of the heart attack. It took 20 times as much with one mouse by itself. And then they said, okay, well, we learned a little something there. We want to learn a little bit more. And so what they do then is they take a unmedicated, undrugged mouse and put it into a group of mice that have that same original dosage. Y'all follow me? So they all have the original dosage that, you know, killed them. So the healthy mouse is dropped in, no drugs, with a bunch of mice that are cracked out on speed. And in a matter of moments, that healthy mouse, guess what? Died of a heart attack. So they learned that your surroundings can have almost as much, if not more, effect on your health than even your own body chemistry. Can you believe that? I mean, it was the same thing as if they had, that little mouse had taken or been given the same amount of drugs, but didn't have any, it still had the same effect and killed that little mouse with a heart attack. So is there a lesson that we can learn as adults and as people here, right? Your situation can really affect your health, can it? And all God's people said, amen. How many of you have ever been a part of a toxic work environment that just really drags your health down? How many of you... You don't have to raise your hand in case you might have family in the room, Um, but how many of you kind of dread Thanksgiving dinner sometimes? (laughs) 
because your family can be a little, little cuckoo, you know, but hey, you're, you're, not, you're not alone in that. We all have a little bit of that. And like I say from time to time, if you don't think you got somebody that's a little bit off in your family, you're the person, you're the one. So I'm just saying. But the thing is, is that we all have those environments, you know. You know, it might be your, it might be actually your house. I don't know, you know, where it's just like we're not healthy, we're not doing things right, and it's affecting my health, it's affecting my mindset. That's a dangerous thing. That's a thing that we want to try to avoid if we can. But the problem is, is that life is life, right? And we can't avoid but so much. You got to make good decisions about where you spend your time and how you spend your time. But there are some situations that you just got to be in. So what do you do? So what do you do? How do you get through life when things don't go the way you want? When the situation is a little bit out there? It's a little bit toxic, if you will, to use a buzzword we use a lot of times. Bad work environment, rough family situation, an old friend group. You know, you go with the intent to really bring them up to your level, but what can happen pretty quick? You get pulled right back down to the things you used to do, the way you used to respond, or the way the group acts and the way the group reacts to things. Um, or maybe as parents, okay, so maybe you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't have a, a crazy toxic work environment. You're lucky, you know, I think. But as parents, does your inner gangster ever come back from the grave when your, parent, your kids try you too much? I tell people all the time, it's like, I did not know what angry was until I had children. They will try you, they will try you. And I mean, you will just find rage that you've never felt before. You love those little things, and that's why God makes them cute, right? So you don't just poof, punt them out the house, you know, because it's just, I'm just being honest. But, and they will, they will test you, and they will drag you down, and you will say things and do things that you haven't done in years. You know, we've all got those scenarios, we've all got those situations, but what do we do when they happen? It's easy to feel like that little mouse, you're trying to be healthy, but everything around you is going so chaotic and so crazy, it's like your heart gets racing and you just don't know if you can take anymore. You turn on the news or get on a news website and you just see the world is just falling into deeper chaos, right? I mean, there's wars after war after war after war, and we're supposed to be all about peace nowadays, right? But there's just more wars. And you get caught up in the noise, and there's so much poverty and hatred and inflation and, you know, crisis after crisis. And then you got to wonder, is chat GPT the devil, or is it like a good thing, right? Y'all know what that is? If, if you don't, that you, you're probably better off. But you, you, you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. We get caught up in the noise. We get caught up in the struggles and our sin. And the question is this. How do we make a difference in the world without getting caught up in the chaos that it brings? If, if you decide, okay, this is what God wants me to do. How do we make a difference in the world without getting caught up in the craziness that it brings? That God wants me to make a difference. I want you to read that on the screen with me. There you go. How do we do it? Because if you've been around Jesus for a little bit, I think you've at least got a small glimpse of the fact that God wants you to make a difference in this world. 
So how do you do that? How do you do it without getting caught up in the craziness and the chaos? How do we reset our lives to talk about our theme for these past few weeks? How do we reset our lives to be a non-anxious presence in this world that's just spinning out of control? It's a valid question. We've talked about hurry sickness a lot. If you haven't been here, you, you might not have heard that, but hurry sickness is just the idea. It's an idea that was kind of coined or the phrase that was made up back in the 50s when things were nowhere near as chaotic. But the fact that we just get going so much so fast that it physically affects our health. And that hurry sickness is there, and we've talked about silence and how when you get away and you get quiet, you can hear God's voice and it helps you to learn to rest. But the trap that I believe we've got to avoid is we don't want to swing to the far opposite side of the spectrum. We don't want to have, be like a pendulum and swing. Okay, we want to get away from the world so we go completely away that we're not able to impact anybody. We, we sometimes think that maybe our Christian faith is just a way that it's kind of like counseling, where it's just we want to improve ourselves and be a healthier person, but it's not just about who. It's not just about us. It's not just about me. It's about other people. And so the idea behind Reset is this. Read along with me. The idea behind Reset is to connect with God so that He can heal you and you can in turn be able to impact the world around you so that they can connect with God. That's a mouthful, but I don't know any other way to say it. God wants you to get healed so that you can help be a light to other people so they can get the healing because it's not just about me. It's not just about us. It's not just about you. There's so many people that need to hear this message from God. So there again, how do we wade into the mess that is this world and not get drugged down by it? I remember when I was a kid, uh, my family would always take, our big extended family would take all these beach trips, and we, or not all these, but we would go once a year to the beach, and I remember my aunts and my mom one time, they got tangled up in the surf, it was a little bit choppy, a little bit rough, and one, mom, uh, one of my aunts went down and started rumbling and tumbling, man. I mean, she was like a steam shovel getting all that sand up in her bathing suit, right? Every time she would try to get up, boom, another way. And so another aunt went and tried to help her out, guess what? Boom, both of them, ah, like this. Ended up being three of them rolling around in the surf, and we were just laughing. And I'm just sad that we didn't have smartphones back then because we'd have been rich, you know, because, I mean, they were just, and that's what it can be like. We want to go and we want to help people out, but what happens to us? We get drugged down, we get knocked down, we get spinning out of control. Jesus was able to do it. And I know you're thinking, okay, well, Jesus is Jesus. And yes, he is. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. That's hard for me to understand. But he was able to go and wade into the mess and pull people out. And the beautiful thing, the encouraging thing to me is that the early church was able to do that too. It wasn't just something Jesus did. Because in the early days of the church, it says the very first day, 3,000 people were baptized into Christ. Man, boom, they just took off. And then really quickly, it says there were 5,000 believers. And it was just, it grew, it grew. And then pretty soon, they started reaching the whole known world. But then about 300 years into the church, this emperor by the name of Constantine 
made it legal to be a Christian. A lot of times he gets credited with making it like the, the state religion of Rome, and that wasn't exactly what he did. He just said, you can be a Christian and not face persecution and not have to worry about it. But that did something. It seemed to be a really good thing. I cannot imagine what it would be like. You know, you had, had Nero that would just put people on spikes and light them on fire. He was an emperor before. And so when they, somebody says, okay, it's legal to be a Christian, I guarantee you most believers were like, yes, this is awesome. But you know what happened really quickly? It became really easy to take your faith for granted. And so the church started slowing down in its effectiveness in reaching people because it lost a sense of urgency, because it didn't cost you that much to be a Christian anymore. Before, if you said, I was a Christian, you were taking a stand that might cost you your very life. But now you could just be sort of comfortable, and it began this process that caused a lot of issues. The truth is, and this is a lesson, maybe you might not get anything else out of today, but maybe this quick little lesson is something you need to get. Easier is not always better. Easier is not always better. Oftentimes it's worse for you in the long run, in almost anything, in almost everything. And instead of the church making inroads into the culture, the culture started making inroads into the church. And then faithful Christians began wrestling with how to impact the culture without getting sucked into the culture. And that caused the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He said, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed so that you can know the will of God and be in his will. And Jesus, going back to Jesus, that was his example. Nearly every major event we see in the Gospels, uh, he would go and he would pray, or right after every major event, every form of big ministry that we see, he goes and he prays and gets alone with God. He was baptized by John, and immediately as, as he's beginning his ministry, he does something really strange. Look at Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 4 with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 4 says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. That is like the understatement of the century, right? Hadn't eaten for 40 days, and he was hungry. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I mean, but that, he was starving, I'm sure. He was starving. And the devil comes, as it says, and tempts him, and tempts him in three very, to us, kind of unusual ways. Let's look at them together. Look at verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, he's hungry, so that part makes sense, but it's such a weird thing. You know, make the stone become bread. And what does it say in verse 4? Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And so he tries a third one. It says in verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, 
If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Kind of weird, kind of weird uh, temptations. And, and they may sound strange to us. It's like, you know, I can understand the hunger thing, but just turning stones to bread, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you really think about it for just a second, you'll see that these temptations are sort of a summary of pretty much all the temptations that you and I go through. They just look different and come at different ways and different times and different intensities. Think about the stones to bread for a second. It says that we can sort of summarize all three of them with this first, that Jesus was tempted about the flesh, the eyes, and pride. The flesh, the eyes, and pride. The stones to bread. It was about his flesh. He was hungry. His desires. He wanted to eat. And so Satan is saying, look, prove who you are. Turn these things into bread. Because what he was trying to do was to get him not to trust God's provision. Have you ever been tempted not to trust God's provision? Doesn't that sort of summarize a lot of the temptations you go through? God, we don't understand, especially in our society, why God would say, I want you to wait until you're married to have sex because you're like, well, I'm never going to have that experience of somebody to love me if I don't do it a different way. And so we don't trust God's provision and God's timing. You know, um, you might be tempted to steal something from work just a little bit because, man, they're just not paying me enough and I don't have enough to make ends meet. So I got to skim off the top. And I know this is extreme, and it, but it can go down on smaller levels too where it's like we don't trust God and we just want to fulfill our flesh. How about the kingdoms where he shows them all the different kingdoms? That was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. He showed him everything that was glittery and shiny, and here's what he wants him to do. He wants him to take a shortcut to his place of power instead of the cross. Now, I don't believe that Satan understood that the cross was coming because it didn't make any sense for the one Messiah to come and die on a cross. You know, Satan's not that smart. He knows a lot, but I don't believe he knew that. But he wanted to try to get him to circumvent God's plan, whatever it might be, and, and go outside of God's plan. But here's what Jesus had to do. Jesus had to decide that he was going to trust not what he saw, but what he knew to be true. That's just like a lot of our temptations. And then the temple jump. He gets him up on the top of the temple and he says, throw yourself down. And he, he prefaced it with what? If you are the son of God, if you are who you say you are, does Satan ever call into question your identity? All the time. He said, if you are who you say you are, throw yourself down. His pride, he, you know, we can get caught into a lot of things because of our pride. And we're like, well, you might not understand who I am, but I'm going to show you who I am. And then we just go off half cocked and crazy and get ourselves in all kinds of mess. And he was asking Jesus to do that. He was calling to question his identity. And Jesus, as hungry as he was, could have just been so tired and so worn out, so exhausted, and said, look, I'm going to show you. Boom, I'm going to throw myself off. And the angels would have done it. But that was not God's timing. That was not God's plan. He called him to, to trust, not, him, not God, but in another way. My body wants me to feel that pleasure but God calls me to purity and to discipline. 
My eyes see this stuff and we want more power, but God calls us to trust his provision and his timing. My, my pride makes me the center of the universe, but God calls us to service and to benefit others. So Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I are, but was without sin. He resisted. And everything that Jesus did, it seems like, in his ministry was sort of counterintuitive. It didn't make any sense. And that's why it's hard for a lot of people to be Christians, because his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and it doesn't make sense with the kingdoms of this world. And so the very first thing that he did before he goes into his ministry is to go into a time of solitude, 40 days in the desert just with him and God. No food, nothing else. And he did that many times over. He's hungry, but he's in this, this place of power. It didn't look like a powerful position, but look at Luke 5, verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Look at Luke 12, 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Guess what he was getting ready to do then? Choose the 12. So he goes and spends time praying. As you go through the Gospels, you see more and more of these opportunities, but they, there's less and less description of it. You know why I believe that's the case? Why it doesn't go into real detail? Because I believe that's just what Jesus did. He got alone with God. And for the disciples and for the, the New Testament authors, I think they were like, this is what Jesus does. There's no need to explain it because he just does it. He spends time with the Father on the regular. After a long day of healing, Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says this, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out into a desolate place, and there he prayed. After the feeding of the 5,000, it says in Matthew 14, verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. You remember when the night he was arrested before he was to go to the cross, what did he spend his last few moments of freedom doing? praying. He invited his disciples to pray. They struggled with it, but he went off a little further by himself, him and the Father, and what? Prayed. Don't let me lose you, okay? There's a point to all this. Getting alone to pray with the Father and talk with the Father was part of his regular life rhythm. Can I wake you back up for a second? How ridiculous does it sound for me and for you to think that you can get through life without talking to the Father on a regular basis every single day? Yet how many times can you stop? And if somebody said, when was the last time you prayed? You're like, uh, I'm not talking about, you know, thank you God for this food, you know. I'm not talking about little quick things like that. I'm talking about focusing on God and really listening to him through his word and through prayer. How often, if Jesus needed to do it, how much more do you and I need to do it? So we've got to wake up and realize that there's something for us to do. Solitude is not just being alone or it's not just being introverted. It's not, you know, taking a long walk just to get away. And a lot of times we think, well, if you've got to have all that time away, it's just because you're weak and you're not strong. You know, Jesus was refilling to pour out, and that's what we're called to do. But what we do when we think we're going to rest, sometimes that means we're going to Netflix binge, right? That doesn't benefit it. I'm not saying you can't watch Netflix. I watch Netflix. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you think that that is really resting you and refilling you, you're wrong. 
You've got to allow time for God to to refill you, to get into his word, to talk to him, to get quiet away from the world. And it's not just crashing on the couch. Solitude is taking time away to be alone with God and with your own soul with the purpose of being refreshed by God. That's what it's all about. Getting away from the demands of your life and the demands of your schedule and the things that uh, attempt to name your identity and tell you who you are and the things that try to quantify your worth and say you're worth this much or you're worth this much. You got to get away from those voices and they're, they're so loud, aren't they? They're so loud. You got to get away from them and listen to the God who made you, who names you and fulfills you and fills you. It's about finding deserts in your life to get quiet and alone with God. These pockets of presence, if you will, with God so you can engage people well and you can make an impact in them and point them to the the grace and the truth of Jesus. We've talked about Sabbath and we've talked about silence. We've talked about rest. We've talked about all these different things over these past few weeks. And basically, they're just the ingredients that make up the meal that is solitude. Those are things you put into your time of solitude. And solitude can look really different, okay? It can look really different. So it could be literally just like 10, 15 minutes of of quiet and silence with Scripture before you go and attack your day. Because your day is going to attack you, right? So you get quiet before God for a few minutes before you jump into your day. Or it can be like a silent retreat, you know? You make time to get away for, you know, 12 hours or 24 hours or whatever you can afford to get away with God and really pray and read Scripture and listen to God. Or it can be a morning walk as you walk your dog or just take a walk around your neighborhood and you talk to God and listen. Or it can be as complex as, as, you know, a literal prayer closet like the the Scripture mentions. Uh, You can take that literally and you can make a little prayer closet where you can write your prayers and your Scriptures that you're trying to memorize. You can do all these things. But the key is this. The key is to find deserts in your life to get away, not to do things for God, but to just be with God. Don't, Don't tune it out. Listen, it's where you water your dry soul. It's where you water your dry soul and you confront what you always try to hide and you thought God didn't know even though he knows everything. And it's where you go and you confront the things that are broken inside of you that you just feel like will never be fixed. He can fix them there. But we struggle to do this, don't we? You know, if you've been to church for a minute, you've probably heard some of this stuff before. But it's a whole other thing to actually live it and do it, right? Because we're busy. We get caught up. We struggle to do it. We struggle to read our Bibles every day. We struggle to pray really sincerely. We struggle to be silent before God, to really rest. Because as we said several times over these past few weeks, we often resist the things that will actually make us well. We resist them. You know, um, how many of you remember a suggestion I gave you if traffic is a bad thing for you and getting behind slow people? How many of you tried driving in the slow lane? You know, I, I don't know if anybody was brave enough to do that, but you drive in the slow lane. But did you realize that maybe you might actually pass the people that are supposedly in the fast lane? You know, it's like, you're like, I'm, I'm driving the slow lane. It's like, oh, I'm making good time. I'm getting by everybody because everybody's over in the fast lane going slow. I can go fast in the slow lane. Boom! You know? <laughs> 
That's not the point, right? That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to get ourselves to slow down and take time to be in the presence of God. Maybe, you know, you thought, I'm going to make time in my schedule for rest. And so what you did was you gave up going to a connect group, but your kid still has four extra extracurricular activities every day, right? So you're not getting any rest. You know, you just gave up the wrong thing. You, you didn't plan your schedule accordingly. So maybe you need to join a connect group where you pause during your week, even though you don't think you've got time to be with God's people and be in God's word. Maybe you need to take your phone and put it to bed before you go to bed. Yeah, believe it or not. (laughs) Believe it or not. Crazy. Crazy. You don't have to scroll for 12 hours before you fall asleep, right? Put it to bed before you go to bed. Maybe, just maybe, Now, this is going to be really radical. You don't hit the snooze button 27 times in the morning. You just hop up out of bed and go pray. Crazy talk, I know, but maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you don't use your phone while you drive and you just sit alone in silence with God. I know that's crazy. You don't listen to podcasts. You don't listen to music. Or if you're going to listen to your phone, let it read the Bible to you while you're in your car. Do something to help you get alone with God. But be alone with your thoughts with God. These things are tough, and they're hard to do. And Henry Nouwen said this. He said, solitude is the furnace of transformation. It's where God works in us so we can do the work of God in the world from a healthy place. You want to accomplish good things for God, you got to have some time of solitude with him because solitude fuels us for service. You know, you can make time to be with God because that's where he can change you and that's where he can make you into the person that you seek to be. Where you want to see the change in the world but it never seems to happen for you, it can happen when you spend time every day getting away with God. And as we said, these habits don't come natural to most of us. We really struggle to implement them in our lives, but they can be learned. I did something that was really hard for me uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I went and took about about 24 hours and did a a retreat to study and pray at this place that I found about six, eight months ago called St. Francis Springs Retreat Center. It's about two hours away. I don't have time, but I made time because I have a hard time getting my mind quiet and just listening to what God wants me to hear from his word and talking back to him. Because I start praying and I go off and all these things, and it looks, like, it looks like spaghetti, you know? Because I can't calm down. And so I said, I've got to get away. Do I have time? No. I got 13 children, you know? I got a full-time job. I got all these things. But I needed to do that if I'm ever going to see a change in me so that I can help change this world. And it was not easy, and it was hard, and it was, it was like work. It was not a vacation. It was like work where I wrestled with myself and I wrestled with God in a lot of ways. And that's why we got to practice solitude because solitude, listen to this, read along with me. Solitude exposes the real you and helps everyone see the real you. Uh Uh-oh. We talk about at our church authenticity I I really do believe in a lot of ways this is a very, very real church. We talk about as well, real church for real people. If somebody's been here for a few minutes, a lot of times I'll say, this church is different than any other church I've been a part of. And I I take that as a, a very big compliment. 
because we don't want to just go with the status quo. Um, how many of you remember uh, last year a guy by the name of uh, Liver King? We've got a picture. Y'all, y'all remember Liver King? A few of y'all heard about him. This guy, he got really big on social media real quick. I know y'all thought that was me at first. I, I know. Common mistake. Actually, I don't want to look like that. I'd like to have a little more muscle. But anyway, Liver King got really famous really quick on social media because he was telling everybody, if you just eat raw liver and lift weights, you're going to look like him. He said, that's all you have to do. Eat raw liver, a few other little things, and work out, lift weights, and you will look like him. And, and you can do it. The dude is like 46 years old, and that's the way he looks. But then it came out, somebody leaked his emails, hacked his emails and leaked them to the public, that he was spending around $15,000 a month on steroids and human growth hormone. Not exactly all natural, is it, you know? He was juiced to the gills, and he was lying. He was a fraud. And some people were probably stunned by that. Some people were probably shocked. I was not overly shocked. But you know what? A lot of us, when we find out about things like that, we're kind of like, yes. Fraud gets exposed because we like that, right? We like when frauds get shown for what they truly are, except for when the fraud is us. And all of us have things about ourselves that we struggle and we want to hide. And we've got to make sure that we get down into our time with God so that we can look deep inside and see who we truly are so that the person that everybody else sees is the one that we want them to see. And not the one that's pretend and not the one that's a fraud or a fake, but the real one that God is working on and changing. Most people don't become frauds intentionally. You can get it off of Liver King. I know it's distracting. Get it off of Liver King. I'm just kidding. He probably had a lot of roid rage. There you go. (laughs) But most people don't become frauds intentionally. You know that? There's some that do. They go and they try to scam people, and that's all they want to do. But most people don't. They often don't recognize they've become a fraud. You know, it just happens slowly over time. And solitude is where we find out, it's where I find out, where you find out that we're not a fraud, or we find out that we don't really believe and do the things we say we believe and do. We can find out that we're not exactly who we are. Solitude. It's where I learn whether I'm a fraud or not. Henry Nouwen that we just mentioned says something like this. He says, solitude is a place of conversion, not merely therapy. It's a place where the old self dies and the new self is born over and over. He goes on to talk about when he gets quiet, he says, I'm full of hatred and lust and rants against his enemies and and greedy. He's the hero at one minute, and then the next minute he's the bad guy, and he's the worst person in the entire world. Do you feel like that when you ever try to get quiet and pray? You just start thinking all these horrible things, you know, or all these these bad things in you come up, and it's like, man, this person makes me so angry. I just wish I could, you know, God, why don't you smack that person down? You know, you ever get that? And it's like you just wrestle with all these stuff, and all this stuff, when you get quiet, that's going to happen. But that's a good thing because it needs to get dredged up out of you so it can get outside of you in a healthy way. So we've got to dig down deep. And then here's what he says. This is an exact quote. He said, it is the nothingness in solitude that I have to face in my solitude 
a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, my distractions, so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. The task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell alone until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and leave me alone. These things that automatically come to my mind when I get quiet. The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that was a mouthful, but he's saying, I've got to spend that time in solitude with God to get all that stuff out so I can completely surrender myself to Jesus. So your time of solitude and prayer and Bible study, it's going to be messy. Some people quit because I don't sit down and I'm not able to write a a 13-page commentary on the book of Acts after I pray for 10 minutes. You know, you feel like I'm not the spiritual giant when I spend 10 minutes praying because you've got to get all that stuff out. It's going to be messy. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult because it shines light on the dark places. And solitude is where who I am and the grace of God collide. And they get to fight. And the person I think I am in my identity gets shouted down by the grace of God because I have been forgiven and I have been set free. And I get to hear God say, this is my child whom I am well pleased in. And I get to hear that he is for me and he is not against me. And we leave all that old stuff behind in solitude where we're free to forgive, we're free to love, we're free to serve, we're free to do and be all those things that we want to see in the world. It only happens when we spend time alone with God. And it shines light. Solitude shines light on the false self, and it makes room for things like patience and love and forgiveness and selfishness, or selflessness, excuse me. Solitude lightens the load that we carry and gives us freedom. How many of you, when you were in high school, thought that high school was the peak of life? A few of y'all did? You know, it's like everything in it is, you know, tells you it is. You know, you look at media, you look at social media, it's like, this is it. This is the most important time of my life. You know, it's four years, but it feels like 12, you know, and it's like, this is it. And then you get a couple years removed, and you're like, that, I was insane. <laughs> High school was really not all that important, you know? And what? Time away gives you what? Perspective. And you realize, yeah, there's some good things that can come from it, and it's, it's a good time in your life, and you can enjoy it and have fun and grow and learn and become a little bit of who you are, but it's not the end-all, be-all, right? And you get a little bit of time away from it, and you gain some perspective, and that's what we all need is that time away to get the perspective of God, where God does the same thing with our burdens. He lifts them off of us and gives us a different thing to carry. And he helps us realize from perspective that our current situation isn't as bad as we thought it was. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30 says this. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This idea of a yoke you know, it was uh, a wooden 
basically kind of like a brace for a couple of oxen to be teamed together with so they would pull in the same direction. And it allowed them to get more done with that yoke and kept them on a straight path. And you could guide them where you wanted them to go. And so Jesus is talking to these people who were listening, and he's talking to you and I. He's saying, you're tired, you're worn out, you're exhausted. You've been trying to work, and you've been trying to plow, but your rows are like, <laughs> like this. And you don't even have any rows because you just can't pull it. He's saying, take my yoke on you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And solitude is where we learn to take on that burden. But you know what's interesting? Jesus is talking to tired people, right? Say, I'm tired. He doesn't say, take a vacation, does he? He doesn't say, here's a mattress, lay down, take a nap. He doesn't say, just cancel work for the week. He gives us more work. He gives us more work, and it doesn't make sense. Like we said, his kingdom is upside down. It doesn't make sense. But when we try things his way, we see Jesus gives us a tool for work. And that's not what we want. We want a break. But Jesus seldom does things the way we'd expect. Jonathan Moynihan said this, Jesus doesn't offer an escape from work. He offers equipment for work. He's got more for us to do, but it's an easy burden. It's a light burden because who's really carrying it? He is. The most restful thing that Jesus can do. Everybody listen. The most restful thing that Jesus can do, according to him, is not the removal of a burden, but a new way to carry that burden. And we don't like that sometimes. But he gives us a new perspective that gives us the strength to get up, back up again when we want to quit. That's why we talk about keep moving until the neighborhood knows Jesus here at Movement. We keep saying we keep moving, we keep growing. When we fall down, we get back up. We're open and honest about our struggles and we help each other up. If I don't know what you're going through, I can't help you and vice versa. So we get up and we keep moving closer to God. Solitude lightens the load because it's the time and place where you're reminded that everything doesn't depend on you. Some of y'all really need to hear that. Because you think that you've got to be the one that has all the answers. You've got to be the one that has all the strength. You're the one that has got to have all the solutions. You're the one that's got to get it done. If it's going to get done, I'm going to do it. But when you get alone with God in solitude and his word and prayer and just some quiet time, you gain a new perspective on eternity. This struggle I'm going through right now doesn't last forever, but our time with Jesus does. You get a new perspective on power. The creator of the universe is on my side. It's, he's on my side. I don't have to be strong enough because he's bigger and he's better. He is powerful. A new perspective on our position. I am a son or a daughter of the king of kings. I am one who is named and saved by grace, and I don't have to be good enough. Some of you are hurting yourselves because you think you've got to be good enough. You will never be good enough. But by the grace of God, you are declared good enough through your faith in Christ. You know, this time allows us to go into the world knowing that there are tasks for me 
and actions for me, but the God of the universe is on my side. He's got things he wants me to do, but he's going to guide me through them, and it's going to be his power. And as God empowers us, we get to walk with him. We're not alone ever, even though you may feel alone. So the beauty of solitude and time with God is that when you really ingrain it in you, you carry it with you. You carry it with you. You learn to deal with life better. You learn to love people better. You learn not to respond because you've learned in your time with God. You know the anger that I have towards my coworker because of the way they treat me? It's not really so much about them. It's because I really doubt who I am. And I feel like their opinion and the way they treat me affects who I am. But guess what? It doesn't at all. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It matters what God thinks of you. And when you start focusing on that, you're going to be someone that people can't even make an accusation against. But your, treat, your co-worker's treatment of you is more about your fear of being taken advantage of or your fear of being forgotten. And so you can let that go when you spend time with solid, in solitude with God. But you're reminded that your identity is in Christ and that no one's opinion of you means anything compared to God's opinion. And in your solitude, you can learn how to continually give your addiction to God because he can carry it when you can't. And so that's when you do that in that time of solitude. He gives you the strength to, to, to keep walking away from that thing that's trying to destroy you. And solitude is a reminder that God's not done with you when you fall. And some of us really need to be reminded of that every single day. God's not done with me when I fall, when I stumble. But his grace is enough, and it's more than the sum of all your fears and all your failures. His grace is enough. Your time of solitude is a time where you remember that you're saved not because of your effort, but by your faith in Christ. Because when you believe in Jesus and what he did for you and you trust his promise at baptism, by faith he makes you forgiven and free. It doesn't make sense. That's why it's by faith because God says so. So when we respond to him, he forgives us and he sets us free. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And you can have that today. And then you can take these practices of Sabbath and silence and scripture and solitude and service and when you get quiet enough to remember that grace of God that saves you. You know, the point of this whole series, and I don't know if you've got it, but it's to remind us that living for Jesus isn't as much about the mountaintop fires and the earthquakes and the mighty winds, but it's in the everyday life that we all live. That's where we're following Jesus, y'all. Not in the big, huge moments all the time. Those come every now and then. But it's in the everyday, living my life for Jesus. And solitude gives us the reset to be able to live every day authentically and free in Christ so that we point others to Christ. That's why we have to spend this time every day with God so that we can keep pointing people to Jesus and we can be truly who God has made us to be and we can be free. That's why we really, really want to ingrain in all of our brains 
that we want to keep moving as a body of believers, as a family in Christ, as a church family. We want to keep moving until the neighborhood knows Jesus. That's been our vision for, for quite some time. But lately, and during that little time of prayer I got away with, God sort of clarified something for me. I, I'm changing the way that I describe our vision, and I want to share that with you today, is that we want to keep moving until the neighborhood not just knows Jesus, but looks like Jesus. Because it's not just about us and them hearing the name of Jesus. It's about us knowing and surrendering to Jesus so that they can know and surrender to Jesus. And they can be shaped and formed to look more like Jesus. And that heaven will be so full, so full with people who don't deserve to be there, but by the grace of God can be with God forever. We want to look more like Jesus. And where that happens, spending time with him every day, focused on him, listening to him, so that we can show other people the way home, the standless worship. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.